0: Downloads of this show are available on podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app.
1: You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode two hundred and ninety-seven of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have regular contributor our resident global hobo, cultural critic, writer, and musician, J.Q., talking with us from his abode about an hour outside of Toulouse in southern France. And we talk about, primarily, American football, the NFL as a living metaphor for America. We talk about the passing of George Herbert Walker Bush, and... Uh, Mention Hunter S. Thompson, get into all kinds of interesting discourse. J.Q., our resident global hobo, today on the program. We also have an E.W. essay titled, Surprise. An article written by the late, great Hunter S. Thompson titled, The Bush League. And a poem called, Shameless. And, of course, as is always the case... All of this will be imbued with the energy of several great tunes. So nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 297 of Troubadours and Raconteurs.
2: When she was just five years old There was nothing happening at all Every time she puts on the radio There was nothing going down at all Not at all Then one fine morning She puts on a New York station You know she don't believe Hey, listen to me now, and it was all right. Come on, now. Listen, It was all right. It was all right. It
1: was all right. It was alright its alright its alright its all right now it is all surprise Idolatry Rewriting history, masked, rationalized in the guise of human kindness, how kind is it to lie to yourself and your progeny? We victimize the victims by celebrating their oppressors, the aggressors, to say so much as I am at this moment for the blind followers is a form of sacrilege, heresy, treason, Instead of searching reason, how does a truer patriot live? Obsequious, subservient, shallow hyperbole, and narrow in the review of the facts? I have heard as a national mantra as of late the notion that truth is whatever one believes objective, nor absolute, I would agree, are so hard for we, our species, to comprehend, though policies perpetuating poverty, injustice, pain, corruption, oligarchy, are clearly wrong. I think if most would see what more truly transpires at the higher levels of institutional power they would know right from wrong as an instinctual response. I just don't know what they would be willing to do to stop the wrongs and actively support the good and just, given their own circumstances and the dire consequences at hand. Often I wonder how honest we are about those wielding the power. Is the fourth estate floundering? Are the arts over-commercialized? Have we been, through countless lies and emotional misdirection, effectively lobotomized, spiritually become cliched and downsized, the depth of our souls, limited as our culture has become more corporatized? As the privileged are praised, human life of those not queens or presidents trivialized, commodified, manipulated, mindlessly ritualized. And to the young boy in me, this comes as such a surprise.
3: De andar sufriendo, solo trabaja, María solo trabaja, solo trabaja, solo trabaja, María solo trabaja, y su trabajo es ajeno.
1: Q, is that you? Oh, that is a, that is me. J- How you doing, EW? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours once again our yeah. resident global hobo, writer, musician, and cultural critic, among other things, JQ on the program, speaking to us from his home in the south of France, somewhere outside of Toulouse.
4: Well, uh, about an hour outside of it, yeah, hour, hour and a half even, yeah.
1: Well, what's the closest metropolis to where you are?
4: Well, metropolis that you would know, it would def- it would be Toulouse or Bordeaux. I'm sort of equidistant between the two. Excellent. Beautiful place. I've
1: been there with you in the past, and uh, again, it's so nice to have you here with us. <clears throat> We're going to talk today about some of your favorite people and some of your favorite things,
4: I understand, Well, yeah, in a a manner of speaking, uh, where to start? I mean, uh, it's football season, (laughs) so I'm making music and and following the NFL. That's that's sort of my winter regimen right now Uh, because, well, because that's what I do. You're Um,
1: able to watch it over there in France?
4: Well, not easily because i don't have a tv and not legally but yes there are ways let's let's just leave that there i guess you know um but yeah and then you know you can always keep up on on what all of the analysts uh, are saying and the stories and this and that and uh yeah a lot of people are surprised that that i i love football but i i absolutely do you know even though i'm at, like your introduction said, you know, the expatriate, bohemian slash musician, living in lazy exile in France of all places. You know, a man of culture, if you will. Uh, but I love football, like deeply and passionately. And a lot of people in the circles I move in, you know, all these marginals and artists and organic farmers and road rats and alley cats. And they're surprised by my zeal for the game. They, they, they almost think it's a put on. But uh, I love it, and uh, for a lot of good reasons, actually.
1: Though you're about to lambaste it, aren't you?
4: Lambaste it? I don't know. All right, here's 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 what I wanted to get into, um, because a lot of people over here, when you know, obviously, when you're an American and you live abroad and you travel a lot, people ask you about America and give you their opinion. Everybody has strong views on on America, politically, socially, and. Culturally in all sorts of ways. And I tell foreign friends, if you want to study America, just watch football. Learn about the NFL. Uh, and in this, I, I mean, I picked up on this when I was a teenager because one of my main influences, literary influences, one of my favorite writers is Hunter S. Thompson. And Thompson loved football, football and wrote about it using the same language and themes that he applied to his political writings, right? Right. He got that connection. He understood uh, that football was the true American sport. And this was back in a time when baseball was the popular thing and was thought of as America's pastime, Um, that in a way, we as a nation are football. The NFL is us. Um, And why that is, all right, let's see. On the surface, American football, as they call it over here, because football would be soccer to them, but. Football is silly. It's absurd. It, it's, it's almost insane. I mean, basically, it's, it's packed coliseums, you know, where we watch millionaires, millionaire gladiators, like, dressed like space Vikings and, you know, and calling themselves uh, bears and tigers or Bengals and lions and cowboys and patriots and all these pretentious names. We watch them giving each other brain damage, chasing an oblong object that they call a ball. It's not round. It's basically a brown egg made from the flesh of a pig, right? Even the ball is wrong. But the NFL, everything about it is so over-the-top absurd that if you think about it too hard, it will set off an existential crisis in your mind. It'll twist your brain into knots, mess up your heart, and basically force you to confront the soul-crushing meaninglessness of our existence. That's my theory.
1: (laughs) And uh, how do you support that theory, Mr. J.Q.?
4: <clears throat> all right, here it is. The NFL is America. Um, you know, it's 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 absurd. Millionaires giving each other brain damage and and a lot of nonsense. But the NFL itself is like a morality play. And I'm talking when I say the NFL, I mean the business, the owners, the players, and the fan reaction, and all the politics and business around it. It's like a morality play about America, and it shows really well the conflict between our proclaimed values, what we like to say and are real unspoken values. So if I throw just a few adjectives at you to describe football that are very true, right? It's intensely competitive. It is intensely stressful and it is very violent. Okay. Those three things to begin with. It's competitive. There's only, you know, it's a sport, so obviously it's competitive and there's a lot at stake. Uh, It's stressful because unlike other major sports, you know, in baseball, there's like 160 games a year. So there's a lot of sort of meaningless games or that seem meaningless when your record is 49 and 23 in football. I mean, there are super important games by week three of the season. There's only 16 games. It's almost like the whole season is all playoffs. Right. Right. And every weekend there's high drama. And that's one of the reasons it's so watchable, you know. Now, it's intensely violent. I mean, you know, like the MMA is considered violent. Mixed martial arts is considered violent. Football's way worse. Every single game, there's strain, sprains, there's bruises, there's fractures, and there's dislocations and concussions, and careers are derailed or ended every season, almost every week. And if you, like, look along the trenches on the offensive and defensive lines, there's four or five MMA fights going on every play, right? So competitive, stressful, and violent. When you say competitive, stressful, and violent, if I said that out of any context, let's say I, and I was describing a society, what country would you think of?
1: Um, Costa Rica.
4: Yeah, that, exactly. You would think of America. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and maybe because of all these sort of negative reasons, here's the thing about the NFL. I mean, it's the most popular sport in America by a long shot now, it's phenomenally entertaining. It's basically Hollywood and Disney World married to a street brawl, right? And it's a pretty intelligent game. There's also a lot of strategy. Uh, You have offensive and defensive coordinators trying to outplan each other and schemes, and there's a lot going on. It combines intense violence every play with pauses that allow you to catch your breath between the plays. So just... Between that, it's competitive, it's stressful, it's violent, it's extremely entertaining. It is also, and this is key, ridiculously lucrative. The NFL is big American capitalism at its finest and most marvelously obnoxious, right? I mean, first of all, you look at the individual player salaries. So the average salary of an NFL player is somewhere around $2 million, right? Which I picked up from Forbes magazine, And I knew it was high, but like the average salary. So your average like second string offensive tackle, right, is making more than what nurses or teachers or whatever profession you think of of people who perform services that are actually valuable to their communities. And that's not to speak of like the big stars, quarterbacks, you know, Aaron Rodgers. He makes over 30 million dollars a year throwing a football, doing this in this silly thing but he has
1: such nice eyes too.
4: Yeah, and he's he's I'm a, I'm a fan of the guy. He's fantastic to watch, you know. It's amazing what he does. I don't know that it's worth 30 million dollars a year. But if you take other superstar quarterbacks like Tom Brady uh, or um, Drew Boo. Brees. Boo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Tom Brady is is made of I I'm convinced he was an he's an android that was built in the in the basement of Disney or something, but Yes. And, and just unleashed upon the public. But uh, all right, Drew Brees, who on the other hand is one of the most likable guys in the NFL, and is really sort of a great guy. It's kind of too religious, though. Well, yeah, but that's that's his prerogative. A lot of people are, but I mean, it, it, whether somebody's religious or not, it's how they use it. And uh, he doesn't beat you over the head with it either. Um, but regardless, the money they make. Okay, Brady and Brees. They make, in the, they make like $10 million a year less than Aaron Rodgers, like in the low $20 million, the poor guys, um, because they give their teams what uh, analysts and fans, what we call hometown discounts. And this is widely considered fantastically selfless, selfless on their part. So, you know, it's like for you people, just for you, because we're so close and because this city means so much to me, I'll throw this oblong ball around a field for 22.5 million because I love you. (laughs) Right. And we actually believe that that's generous of them, Uh, you know, but that's just individual player salaries. Um, When you look at the actual business of the NFL, it's really sort of mind boggling. Okay. There's 32 teams. Um, And if you take them all together, You can combine every Major League Baseball team and every NBA team, take all that together, and it's still worth less than the NFL. And football is so popular that, you know, if you rank professional sports, basketball is the third most popular. But if you count non-professional sports, the third most popular in terms of uh, audience and, and revenue and attendance is actually college football. So it's pro football, baseball, college football. And the most popular sport in terms of attendance and attention in high schools by a country mile is high school football, right? And
1: excuse me, you have a problem with this?
4: It's not that I have a problem with it. It's where we're going with it because, you know, it's important to to remember just how big a business it, it is and how much that affects what is supposed to be a sport, right? Right. Because the average L, average uh, football franchise, an NFL franchise, is valued at its, – it's over – it's close to $2.5 billion. I think it's $2.3 billion. OK. And that's like a 20 percent uh, increase from last year. And from 2014, it's like a 60 percent – 60, 65 percent increase. That's insane. OK. And then you'll hear people like during the, the whole scandal, which we'll come to, over Trump and the, versus the NFL and Kaepernick and the protests over police brutality. Everybody's saying, oh, ratings are down. The NFL is in trouble. They're up 60 percent from 2014 in terms of revenue. And it takes very little to bump ratings back up. Just recently there was a phenomenal football game between the Chiefs and the Rams. And it was – I saw it. It was Pure entertainment. It was absolutely wonderful, um, and immediately the following week, the ratings for every game were up. You know, and so it doesn't take much. All right, but just to summarize all of this, well, we've covered... yeah, go ahead.
1: No, you you're, you made a, a reference that is very compelling to me, and I wanted to go there. Uh, the politics of the NFL, you know, and the, oh, sure. the owners and the players too. Uh, how they probably well. I don't know if they're dis, if if it's disconnected, the general mentality of of the average uh, owner or player with the fan, or if if the fans are in line with the politics, and uh, you know their belief as to what is right or wrong culturally um, and and uh, in in our society. If it's if they're in line.
4: All right, that's that's an excellent question, and I definitely want to get to the politics around it because. Again, the, the the sort of theme is the NFL is America. You know, if you want to understand America, it's it's a it's a microcosm of everything. So, if you look at the power structure of the NFL, to begin with, they have a sort of government. They have a president, and that would be Commissioner Goodell, and he's sort of he's supposed to be the final voice, as our president is. But it's the owners of the franchises who are like what, like the multinational corporations, they, they run the show. He's not exactly their puppet, but he's very much trying to deal with their influence and power over him. And there's little coteries and cliques among the owners. They want different things, uh, and there's battles with the commissioner. But he's the guy who always has to be out front speaking for the NFL. The real power – actually – I, it might be better to think of the owners as um the bankers they're the the banksters you know they they allegedly they finance the league except that they don't really they they finance every a lot of it by milking the government so that you have federal state and city taxes being dumped into building stadiums or even supporting ad revenue with the idea of generating revenue but
1: and and, and then you have the union the players union and exactly. you know that's labor, and you have millionaires who are being sort of hired by billionaires, uh, as as I'm sure you understand based on your your research. Now, what I want to do too, JQ, wait, wait, wait. let's, let's I, not leave
4: that. You just said something really good. Uh,
1: well, yeah, I I, I, uh, I appreciate that. I want to make sure we have time to talk about uh, the passing of. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, too. We're already you know, about 15 minutes into our conversation,
4: so let's keep that in mind. All right. Well, just let me cap this off. Yeah, you said billionaires hiring millionaires. Uh, you know the comedian Jim Jeffries? Yes. All right. He has a line where he asks, um, how famous does a pedophile have to be before we're OK with it? And he brings up Elvis and Charlie Chaplin, who did sleep with underage girls and went after them. They did it. We don't talk about it much because they're these beloved icons. All right. Similarly, you could ask the same question. How well do slaves have to be treated before we're okay with you having a plantation? Because you said it yourself. You, what you have is a bunch of the thing you didn't rest, mention as the racial element. You've got a bunch of black guys who are millionaires, granted. But the guys who run their lives are billionaires. The players are mainly black. The billionaire owners are white. So the NFL basically looks like 32 slave plantations like sort of, what, deluxe slavery or slavery for the ultra-rich or something. And you really see the whole political setup around the Kaepernick issue. It was a protest about a very serious issue, police brutality, right? But the issue was forgotten. It becomes about supporting the troops in our foreign invasions and wars, which is a sort of propaganda manipulation coup that would make the Nazis jealous, Right. And you have a population, therefore, the players that care about this issue and actually lean to the left, as in opinion polls, the American populace does. But you have a power structure that wants the opposite thing and manages to change the dialogue every single time. And it's a perfect illustration, Colin Kaepernick protesting police brutality and then it becoming this massive national issue around supporting the troops, which has nothing to do with it, right, right? A perfect example of how the NFL, like our media and politics, always get away from the issues that actually manage to the people that manage that actually count for the people, let's say, and turn it into something. And we end up arguing about it. We 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 fall for this time and time again. And it's what happens with the NFL. It's the same thing. It's a microcosm of American society and politics and so on.
1: You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with EW Conundrum Demure on Radio Free, Brooklyn. So, any in- inequality, oppression, uh, white, uh, old white men controlling things and being uncomfortable with some of the injustice that exists in our society, all of that exists in larger uh, uh, society as well as. It is uh, seen in, in the microcosm that you, you know is the NFL. That's what you're saying.
4: That's that's the way of summing it up. Yeah. And, and and who's your favorite team? I don't have one. I like players, not teams. I I don't root for laundry. I like I like a good game. Because here's the thing: if when you look closer, and here's and again, this is like America. Look at those players. You look closer. There's stories of real heroism under duress. I mean, when you watch a game, granted, it's a game. But the physical courage, the teamwork, uh, you know, the – I mean football players play through injuries that would stop you or me from going to the dentist, right, or going out to see a movie with friends, all the pain and everything. And when you look at certain individual players and you begin to learn their stories, there's some really great people out there doing it, and that's what makes the game interesting to me. A guy like Marquise Goodwin, for instance, who all his life is taking care of his sister with cerebral palsy, right, right? Uh, or Jarvis Landry, another wide receiver who plays for the Browns now. his high school sweetheart died of cystic fibrosis and he's still donating tons of time and money and effort and his name to that cause you know or you learn about how Richard Sherman, who's a big loudmouth but he and he's known for that, but he came up in Compton. He has an amazing life story or Des Bryant who had a tortured childhood and had to struggle in school just so he could be allowed to play football and managed to do it, you know. So there's a lot of great stories out there, not to mention guys who, just in terms of charity and good works, J.J. Watt, Drew Brees, they're
1: you, good people. Do you think uh, some of these uh, gentlemen uh, would be insulted by you saying that they're part of a plantation? Slaves?
4: Uh, I bet, you know, in private moments, a lot of them think the same thing. I mean, I'm hardly the first person to raise that idea. Uh, it's it's not exactly cliche, but it's been said before. And it needs to be said because it's it's sort of true, but... As America goes, the NFL is is just a reflection of who we are as a society. We get the same sort of thing, you know. It's this massive, entertaining, freak show Disney world. It's it's full of beautiful people and it produces all these paradoxical and horrible results. We worship winning and ambition. You know, there's the value. All right, here's how you can sum it up. Well, let's sum it up
1: because we have about 10 minutes then to talk about George Herbert Walker Bush.
4: All right, which we'll get to. The, all right, I'll sum it up. The NFL is a perfect living illustration of how our values okay, are polluted by the institutions that are supposed to embody and express them. It's a problem of institutions. In morality, we have this thing called the golden rule, which is universal. It's in practically every tradition in the world, every moral tradition. Ours in the West, we know it from the Bible. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That is the golden rule of morality. In sports, there's a golden rule. We hardly ever even mention it when it comes to the NFL. It's this. It's not whether you win or lose. It's how you play the game. You know, as kids, we know that. In professional sports, it's completely forgotten. It becomes about money and business. That said, down among the people, the citizenry, in this case, the players, they do embody that through their acts, through their actions. But our public response to football and the actions of the league and owners Betray that, and turn our values almost into their perfect opposite. There, how was that for a summary?
1: Good, very good. And now, <laughs> let's go to George George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, you call him you call him a war criminal. He just passed. Uh, actually, the, today is the day uh, they are burying him in Texas, uh, as we as we speak on this conversation. People are going to hear it after uh, this this day. Uh, so, what do you have to say about him? Why do you call him a war criminal?
4: Did did I call him a war criminal?
1: Yeah, in the text that you all sent right. me. Yep, you did.
4: Oh, okay. All right, but that that was a private message. <laughs> if I'm going to state publicly uh, that George Bush is a war criminal, well, then all right. Yeah, well, I mean, he is. <laughs> most of our presidents are war criminals. You know, we we have to face that. So that's not saying a lot. I do have a bit of a problem. With the the hagiography and, and the whitewashing of history that we get into with our former presidents, you know, because Trump comes along and now we're acting like George W. Bush was some sort of statesman and didn't drop you uranium-depleted bombs on innocent civilian populations and kill hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, and that he's not somehow responsible for this. You're talking he's, about in
1: Iraq and in Afghanistan.
4: Yes. And now his father, you remember that innocent time when we didn't have to distinguish Herbert Walker from W. We could just say George Bush, that pinhead. Those wonderful days. Yes. Yeah. Those halcyon days. Well, his his father, granted, he was more moderate than the son and was at least intelligent enough, for instance, to know that Reaganomics was – a completely ridiculous economic theory. He called it voodoo economics. That's, you know, he was the man who came up with that phrase during the campaign, you know, when he was running against Reagan in the primaries. Um, And he was against it. And then he would promise, of course, you know, read my lips, no new taxes. Then when he got into office, he cut taxes and he said, oh, that was campaign talk. You have to cut taxes. Right. So he was much more of a realist. But this is also – like people are freaking out now because Donald Trump is going to pardon everybody that is guilty of whatever or threatening to, you know, pardon everybody uh, at some point. But we forget that George Herbert Walker Bush did precisely that. He pardoned tons of people from the Iran-Contra deal, which he was also almost certainly personally involved in. Uh, So –
1: So you don't want to celebrate his life. You don't think he was a a patriot to this country, even though I think he fought in World War II, right, maybe, or uh, Korea as well. I I don't know. I don't follow him that much. I I personally don't feel that bad about him passing. He means nothing to me. Uh, I don't worship uh, public servants. I admire those who do great work, and he hasn't compelled me to think that he's done anything that great to be honest and as you said i question a lot of what i do know he did he was the head of the cia so god knows what he did um
4: yeah that's a good point too and as far as his, as his wartime record and all of that look i'm not condemning or sanctifying the man uh, it's neither nor i'm just going to speak honestly about his political record that his family will mourn him or people that were close to him, that's normal. The rest of it is just a lot of hand-wringing and, and public displays of whatever, you know. Uh, I'll talk about George Bush after his death as I talked about him during his life. I don't know the man personally. I talk about him mainly as a president. That's where he affects me and people I care about, or as the director of the CIA, for instance. Uh, and his record there is is a nightmare to me, even if it's more moderate than a lot that has happened since, Right. Uh, and he, he had certain aspects of his character and of his policy that were fairly reasonable. I'll admit that, but I just
1: relatively speaking, I, relatively speaking, as you put it,
4: yeah, relatively speaking. Uh, um, but huh. yeah, I don't know. I, I do. What I have a problem with is is the way we talk about things in the media, the mainstream media in particular, is just. It's, there's a reason people are turning away from it in droves. There's a, there's a lot of very, very good reasons. And, and the, the sort of automatic worship of an ex-president you know, or the, the whitewashing of the historical record you know, of, of people like Bush father and son uh, because of who's in the White House now, I, I see no point to that. I think it's counterproductive.
1: It is. It is. Once when you whitewash our history, then you're not uh, really understanding where we've been, why we are, who we are, and where we are. And and uh, how do you then find solutions to uh, those those uh, problems that that came from the past? That uh, you know, and make. And how do you make sure you don't may, uh, fall into the same bad behavior again if you whitewash? Uh, and ignore forget, rewrite history i you know i it's very I- irrational it's not uh, intellectual it's not critical thinking uh, in any way shape or form it's yeah, it's it's not about hate here you know some people that i don't know how why they'd be listening to our show because we're not anything but progressive i think Uh, But if someone's a more conservative mindset, they'd be going, how can these people say this? They're, they're terrible. They're hateful. No, this is not about hate. This is about honesty. This is about integrity. This is about intellectual honesty and integrity so that we can learn and grow as a society, as individuals.
4: Sure. I mean, when it, when it comes to politics in general, you know, I avoid identifying myself as left or right because I find the terms don't actually apply to how policy truly works, but I do in theme, I think of myself more as a tokenist Because in The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, the reason that story is so powerful, one of the reasons, uh, and has had such an impact over decades, is because it's the perfect symbol. At the very center of the whole story is is the ring of power. And the ring is power. And it brings out the worst in people. It's It's just an embodiment of that old idea that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And if you get close to it, you something like that. But the problem is actually, I, there's a, it needs a little nuance because really the problem is that power attracts the worst in us and the worst among us. In other words, we get the leaders that, that we can't avoid, not even that we deserve. I wouldn't go so far to say that. I don't think we deserve them. But the problem is, is that power and power careers attract people who are, A, phenomenally ambitious and people who have not only the ambition but the intelligence, the cleverness, you know, and and a lack of empathy or selective empathy so that you can stab people in the back as long as you're getting ahead. There's a a sort of sociopathic nature to power itself, which is why you find very high levels of sociopathy and, and psychopathy, Mem and high-functioning sociopaths in professions involving jurisprudence, politics, and the corporate world.
1: I think you're right. And <clears throat> let, let me uh, let me just get a thread going through what we talked about because we're just about out of time here. We're talking to J.Q. Public here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours, our resident global hobo, writer, musician, and cultural critic. We'll be hearing a song right after our conversation of, of his uh, Creation. Uh, we, we talk, we're talking about the NFL and how it reflects, it represents uh, culture in the United States of America. We talk, we're talking a bit about the passing of George Herbert Walker Bush and, and how new history and uh, worship of, of, a, of a fallen leader just seems to happen automatic despite really the details in, in what they did with their life. Um and uh, we got into now power attra- attracting the worst in us and the worst among us. I love that phrase. Um, uh, JQ, before we head out until next time, you know, um, w- what are you, what are you looking at as as uh, some some something you'd like to see occur or or something you might whether you like it or not you're sure is gonna occur in the upcoming year.
4: Oh, wow. Uh, I'm not very good for predicting the future. I'm I'm actually terrible at it. My life would probably be different (laughs) if I was better at it. But uh, in the coming year, oh, golly, Um, I'd like to see uh, an upsurge from the cultural underground, such as we saw – Let's say in the late 80s, early 90s, with a lot of the music and the hip hop and uh, grunge and and more interesting folk singers and singer songwriters Um, in cinema in the 90s, things got very interesting with a lot of independent filmmakers. You can go back to the 70s and the 60s when, you know, there's little moments in American cultural history where the stuff that is underground and has been for a while uh, is is kept down. And we're we're drowning in commercial pap, and that has been happening a lot over the last more and more over the last decade. But that always leads to a boiling point where something very interesting happens, and all of a sudden the really good stuff takes over again. You know, you think of the moment where Nirvana knocked Michael Jackson off the charts. That was a, that was an important moment for me because it says something about where the cultural mindset is at when you demand more uh, sincerity and real emotion and depth and less sort of talented surface entertainment. And so that's something I'd like to see in 2019. That it will actually happen, I don't know. We might be in the final downward spiral for all I know. (laughs) So I won't predict it, but I'll say I'd like it to happen.
1: Well, I hope you're correct. And uh, either way, I wish you the best. And thank you so much for taking some time out from your place and your life in the south of France. Give all of uh, your loved ones there uh, a big kiss from E. W.
4: Well, I certainly will, and right back at your kids, man. And, uh, well, I hope one of us gets to the other's continent soon and we actually get to see each other face-to-face. That'd be wonderful. Ciao, Fratello. Hang loose, brother.
0: Talk is what you need the sun's gonna set the moon gonna rise What you see and what you get A little word to the wise. All fed up with a setup And the yada, yada, yada You gotta hit a pony it, Grab it by the horn Then ride it right through the coming storm Now you can beat your horse All day long Crying, giddy up yeah, get along Ain't gonna budge Ain't gonna
1: League by Hunter S. Thompson. Why are we seeing George Bush on TV every two hours for nine or ten days at a time, like some kind of mutated Mr. Rogers clone? Something is dangerously wrong in any country where a monumentally failed backwoods politician can scare our national TV networks so totally that they will give him anything he wants. The answer to that one comes in two parts. One is that Bush will have to run for re-election next year, which three months ago seemed like a harmless waltz, but which is now looking like a dangerous gang fight that Bush might not win, because his overall game plan for Iraq was so hopelessly flawed that it could never have been successful. It was arrogant and ignorant and stupid, And now the vultures are coming home to roost. Tragic, eh? No. In fact, it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. I believe very strongly that George Bush can and shall be beaten like a gong in the next year's extremely important election, where he won't be the only jackass politician running for his life. Who gave George Bush permission to preempt and butt into NFL football games and turn pregame ceremonies into a half-bright rave about rebuilding a nation that we just bombed back into the Stone Age? What kind of cowardly swine would freely give $25 million worth of commercial time to any political candidate In a presidential election year how about the greed blind commissioner of the national football league does that sound right you bet it does bubba it was paul taglabu who let the egg sucking weasel from texas into the hen house because he thought it was necessary at the time My darkest fear now is that we will be seeing George W. Bush on NFL TV every Sunday for the rest of this year and far into the winter and maybe all next year until Election Day rolls around, constantly jabbering about how his jackass war on the nation of Islam is joined at the hip with the nature of football in America and especially the NFL. If you love to watch anything that looks like professional American football, you will also love the brutal culture of war and all the murderous violence that goes right along with it. Right? In war, you do 200 push-ups a day. And in pro football, you do about 50. In war, you carry a 9-pound full auto-assault rifle at all times. And in football... You carry a pointed leather ball. They are both profoundly violent and cruel and utterly unforgiving, and they both require public brutality by people wearing elaborate uniforms. I have tried them both for long periods of time, and I frankly see no basic similarity at all beyond the powerful desire to hurt people. The compelling insight of the late Hunter S. Thompson. And now we cheer him, George W. Bush, for giving candy to Michelle Obama. Who are we?
3: December You like your little crate I think I'm winning this debate
1: Shameless. Our Lady of Snow washes clean Our Lady of Peace, as St. Anthony takes care of that thing at the marketplace, if you know what I mean. Bada-boom, bada-bing. Yet, tis the season for inspirational church bells to ring, and for quaint children dressed as sugar-plum fairies Beautifully and earnestly to sing under December skyscape and opium dens with oxy and methamphetamine, feeding the jewelers' pockets as the gangsters display their stature and wealth via head and torso, bling, bling, silent, night, shameless.
2: Motion. Slow motion, slow motion. Yeah, a little ride in bloom and day. God is with us every day. A little red light is with us every night.
1: there you have it, episode 297 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum, Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our resident global hobo, regular contributor, writer, musician, and cultural critic from the south of France at present, J.Q. Thank you so much, sir. I'd like to thank the late great Hunter S. Thompson, and these musical artists, Velvet Underground, Susanna Baca, J.Q., Sloth Rust, Wilco, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grapelli, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. Until next week, why don't we give it a go and try to enjoy this one?